So we often think of our food choices as personal, but these choices are made within an environment. Where we live, how we grew up, how much money we make, our personal tastes and preferences, all of these things inform our choices. And there's also science telling us what's healthy and what's maybe not so healthy. And there's marketing. And as Marian Nestle has literally written the book on, there's marketing masquerading as science. So in Unsavory Truth, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat, she talks about how industry-funded research so often favors the sponsor. So from yogurt to pomegranate to sugar, food industry groups manipulate nutrition science. Why? Well, because as she says, food producers want to expand sales and health claims sell. So Marion is a professor of nutrition sciences, a researcher, a prolific writer, and she was also our very first guest on our very first episode of Real Food Reads discussing her brilliant book, Soda Politics. And we are so happy to have her here today with us at the Quesa Ferry Plaza Farmers Market for this special edition of Real Food Reads. I'm Tiffany Patton, and thank you so much for joining us all today. <laughs> Okay, so in preparing for this interview, I came across this headline. Eating chocolate combined with zinc could help you live longer. And the zinc hack supposedly also works with coffee, tea, and wine, which is amazing, if it's true. <laughs> so we are obviously like constantly bombarded with all of this recently discovered, almost magical property of a single food. And so often, this magical property has been discovered by the industry group that is selling it. But what is the problem with this research if they're really just telling us about a health benefit? <laughs> We're starting out with that question. First of all, I want to thank you all for coming and risking your lives to be here. As I am risking mine, apparently. I took my mask off for this. Um, th this is a book about food industry funding of nutrition research. And the first question is the one that Tiffany asked, which is what's wrong with promoting fruits and vegetables and making them seem like they're healthier than any other kind of food? Um, and the answer is um, healthy diets contain lots of fruits and vegetables. And is, does it really make sense? to try to promote pecans over cashews or pomegranates over blueberries or peaches or apples or pears or any of those kinds of things. It seems to me that that kind of research, which is based on marketing and really about marketing, confuses the public, makes people think that if you eat this one food, it's going to solve all your dietary problems. Oh, how I wish. Um, and it makes you think that chocolate is a health food because it's got flavanols. Um, it might be if you eat little bits, little teeny bits of it, but it's unlikely to be a health food if you're eating pounds of it. The chocolate industry would like you to eat pounds of it for obvious reasons. So, so that's sort of how I got involved in this, was looking at uh, industry-funded research and thinking, what are they doing? And is this good? Is it good for science? Is it good for public health? My answer was no. I think that's a good answer. Mm -hmm. So I don't imagine scientists are in some underground lab plotting to get us to consume more mm -hmm. necessarily. Um, how is scientific research, which is something that we see as objective, so often skewed? 
Well, the uh, the major findings of the of my research on this book were first of all that industry funded studies almost invariably come out with results that favor the sponsor's interest. What a coincidence. The second major finding is that there's an enormous literature on human behavior that demonstrates that it's not that food companies buy scientists or that scientists are necessarily corrupt. It's that they don't realize they're being influenced. The influence of gifts is occurs unconsciously, it's unintentional, it's unrecognized. And if you ask scientists who take money from food companies whether the funding influences how they design, con conduct, or interpret their research, they say no. Of course not, because they don't realize the influence. It occurs at some subconscious level, which makes it very, very difficult to talk about and very difficult to deal with. And the third major finding, and, this, and again, there's a huge amount of research to back this up, is that the major biases of funding occur in the way the research question is asked. Um, there's a, I get letters all the time from trade associations for pecans, yogurt, grapes, any number of foods, saying we are looking for research proposals to demonstrate the benefits of our product for health. There's a big difference between a research question that looks for benefits and a research question that's open-ended and says, Let's, what's the effect of this product on health? Um, that may seem like a, a subtle distinction, but it's not, and it's very easy to design studies that will show benefits. And there are, you know, I give lots and lots and lots of examples. So. Right, so when you're looking for something, you'll find it. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it's not there and you can't find it. And then you interpret it in a different way. But most of the research on industry funding and most of that research has been done on pharmaceutical industry funding of physicians, prescription practices, and behavior on advisory committees shows that the influence is really unconscious for the most part. So speaking of pharmaceutical companies, can you um, tell us a little bit more about some of the similarities between big pharma and big food? Well, most of the research on this topic, on, on the topic of industry funding, has been done on big pharma. And that research goes back 60, 70 years, there are libraries full of books about the influence of drug industry funding on physicians' prescription practices. And that research shows that drug industry funded studies almost invariably favor the brand name drug of the company that's um, funding the study, even though a generic drug might be more effective and certainly cheaper. Um, it shows that the influence is unconscious and unrecognized and unintentional. It shows that the bias is in the way the study is conducted. And, you know, that was really the basis. When I went to do for food what had been done for drugs, um, in contrast to the thousands and thousands of studies that have been done on drug industry funding, I could only find 11 on food industry funding, and those are all since 2003, but they kind of tend in the same direction. So I think you, I can make generalizations about it. Um, but I want to give one example, if that's okay. There, and it's an example that's not in the book. 
in June last year, the New York Times had an article about how five big alcohol companies, companies that make alcoholic beverages, gave $67 million to the National Institutes of Health for a study on the effects of one drink a day on health. And the investigative report that the New York Times reporter did demonstrated that, I mean, she got, she got a tip from somebody at NIH and investigated and found out that essentially NIH had promised the alcohol industry that its study would find that one drink a day reduced the risk for heart disease. Um, and they had essentially promised they were designing the study so that it would demonstrate that effect, and they were deliberately designing the study by choice of people who were involved in the trial and by the length of time that they ran the trial so that it had no chance whatsoever of demonstrating that alcohol increases the risk of breast cancer, for example. And when this came out, the um, the NIH was really, uh, I guess I guess the head of NIH didn't know about it, they, um, they said they would investigate. They appointed a committee to investigate. As that committee was doing its work, the NIH stopped enrollment in the trial. And when the r report came out, which was just absolutely scathing, it stopped the trial. Um, and so that trial ended. So that was a perfect example of how industry funding and sometimes researchers can collaborate to give a result that people want when there's lots and lots and lots of money involved. And in this case, there was lots of money involved. Yeah, that's a, such an interesting example, and I hadn't heard that. It's <laughs> ridiculous. Um, so we have, like as you mentioned, there's been this huge body of research about the influence of industry funding research. But yet, it seems like we still haven't maybe learned so much from that. So why do you think that is? What has gotten in the way of government bodies and people learning from what happened in the pharmaceutical industry? Well, everybody wants the money. So the object of the game is to get the money and to try to do it in a way that puts a firewall between the researchers and the funder. That's very, very difficult to do. And in the book, I have several examples, historical examples of foundations that were set up to do exactly that. But because the industry funding was voluntary, they had to please the funders to keep the money coming in, and so it had the same kind of effect. You know, and, and the research on funding is fascinating. I, I was unfamiliar with it before I started working on this book. But the drug industry funding shows that all you have to do is give a physician a pen and a pad of paper with a drug logo on it, and that will encourage the physician to prescribe that drug. And th the reason that these studies can be done with drugs is that drug industry funding is measurable. There's a website um, that gives a, under the Affordable Care Act, the Affordable Care Act had a lot of really great stuff in it. And one of the great stuff things in it was the Physicians Payment Sunshine Act, which requires drug companies to state every year who they give money to, how much money they give, and every hospital, every medical entity, and every individual physician who gets money from a drug company is listed on this website. So all you have to do is go on the website and take a look. And that was another New York Times scandal 
because there was a article in the Times about a, a cancer researcher at Sloan Kettering in New York who um, didn't disclose any drug industry funding in the drug trials that he did, but somebody just went and looked it up. And it turns out he had connections with 25 different drug companies, and certainly the drug company that funded the trial that was at issue there. So it's very embarrassing to get caught in this kind of, in this kind of thing. And uh, I write a lot about Coca-Cola in my book, um, not because Coca-Cola is any worse than any other company, but mainly because Coca-Cola got caught. Uh, its, its emails got FOIA'd, and people found them, and, and, and they're they're kind of fun to read if you're gossipy like I am. <laughs> so you have done a lot of work on soda. Um, can you tell us about some of your personal experience with Coca-Cola and soda industry and the remarkable links that corporations like them will go to to prop up demand? <laughs> well, Tiffany is talking about the first chapter of this book in which I talk about of all things, the hacked Hillary Clinton emails. Remember the hacked Hillary Clinton emails? And what do they have to do with any of this? Um, I heard about the uh, emails that were collected from Hillary Clinton's staff from a couple of people, a guy who works for a group called Ninjas for Health, I have no idea what that is, um, and somebody who works for CrossFit, the exercise company, and they both uh, wrote me and said, Marion, you're in the emails. I thought, what? How is that possible? Um, so I went and looked, and they told me where to look. And it turns out that an advisor to Hillary Clinton, who was traveling with her, while she was working on Hillary Clinton's campaign, was also an advisor to Coca-Cola, was consulting for Coca-Cola, and getting $7,000 a month for doing so. Not a bad job. Um, and her emails with a vice president of Coca-Cola were picked up in that, and posted on a site called DC Leaks. And the DC Leaks site had emails that talked about Coca-Cola's tracking my activities in Australia a couple of years ago. Right after Soda, my book Soda Politics came out, I was in Australia working with a conflict of interest researcher at the University of Sydney. And they invited me to give a talk to the Australian Nutrition Society, which I did. And as I w it was a very small audience. And um, when I was about to give the talk, somebody came up to me and said, you know, there's somebody from Coca-Cola in the audience. Are you okay about that? And I said, of course I'm okay about that. My book, Soda Politics, had just come out. <laughs> I assumed there was somebody from Coca-Cola in every talk I give. And you know who you are. <laughs> right? So this, per this woman who worked for a public relations person who worked for Coca-Cola had taken excellent notes on my talk, quite complete. If you ever want to see notes on a lecture, just look up the email um, and forwarded up them up through the Coca-Cola chain of command with recommendations that they monitor my activities in Australia, monitor my talks, monitor who I interviewed with, and also monitor the activities of the woman I was working with. So that was kind of fun. I thought, really? Coca-Cola doesn't have anything, anything better to do than to pay attention to who I'm giving lectures to in Australia? 
<laughs> I was kind of surprised. I actually have a very good relationship with executives at Coca-Cola. I've met with the president of Coca-Cola North America, uh, the last one and the current one, three times in my office. <laughs> wow. <laughs> They're definitely watching you at all times, it seems. <laughs> they're very interested in telling me all the good things they're doing. <laughs> I bet they are. Um, so you've ta we've talked a lot about how this industry influence is a systemic problem. Um, mm. How is it a personal problem? Industry influence? It's a personal problem because if you take money from a food company, for your research, you run the risk of losing opportunities to be on prestigious committees, of having your work exposed in the, on the front page of the New York Times, which is always embarrassing, um, and maybe being um, tracked and followed and you know looked that you look as if you've sold out. Uh, nobody will believe your research. It reduces it reduces trust in the quality of the research. Um, because much of this research is focused on monitoring. It's not as if it's basic science research. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about research that's basically aimed at marketing claims so that companies can sell their foods as being healthy, or in the case of Coca-Cola, can sell their foods, that can sell sugary beverages as not being harmful. Right. So what are the questions that we as consumers should ask ourselves when we see some new health claim? Oh, I never believe health claims. <laughs> you know, that's, Dang it. That's, that's advertising. I mean, you always want to be skeptical about these kinds of things. And I tell everybody, just use common sense. I mean, does it make common sense? Does it, does it fit common sense for you to think that chocolate is a health food? Come on, give me a break. <laughs> Um, or that blueberries will cure erectile dysfunction, or that alcohol will lower the risk of heart disease. I mean, really, if you just give it a moment's thought. But advertising isn't aimed at your cognitive processes. If, ag if advertising is working, you don't notice it and you don't think about it. You're not supposed to think about it. So it's hard to think about these things, and besides, they're fun. So it's much more fun to think that chocolate will solve all your health problems. Yeah, I think it solves all of your health problems, emotional, mental, physical. <laughs> right. So um, there are a handful of nutrition education organizations like uh, the American Society of Nutrition and the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics that have close relationships with industry groups like the Sugar Association. So what is the impact of these close relationships on our education and public health? Yeah, well, it's a problem. I mean, one of the reasons why food, food and beverage companies are so interested in funding the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, the American Society for Nutrition, the Obesity Society, and all of these nutrition organizations is that they buy silence, if nothing else. Um, even if they don't directly influence what the societies are saying about health issues, they at least get them to be quiet on the subject of whatever the product is. And, you know, again, I'm going to use Coca-Cola as an example, um, not because it's the worst of the worst, but because it, it gets caught. And the... Um, you know, if Coca-Cola is funding the Academy of Nutrition and 
dietetics, which I don't think it is anymore. And I'm pretty sure, I think Coca-Cola pulled out when its relationships with these organizations was revealed in a front page New York Times story. Um, but the, um, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics does not issue advice to avoid sugary drinks. It says all foods and drinks can be part of a healthy diet. Just don't eat very much of them, which is lovely advice, but not very helpful, I think. Um, and, and so that's essentially buying science. I'm not a member of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, but I am a member of the American Society for Nutrition. And it really distresses me that the society takes food industry friendly positions on almost any issue that it makes, that it states a position on. At least within the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, there are members who are fighting hard to try to get the Academy to clean up its relationship with food companies. I don't see that in the uh, association for this. I don't see it in the Nutrition Association, which represents researchers and who have doctoral degrees of one kind or another. I just don't see that kind of concern. One of the reasons I wrote this book was in the hope that my colleagues in nutrition societies would pay more attention to these issues because I don't think it makes our profession look good. No, I mean, I've definitely learned to question everything after <laughs> reading this book. Oh, dear. <laughs> so I feel like most of what we talked about so far today has been pretty U.S.-centric, but this is also an international mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about these international implications of the close ties between nutrition scientists and corporations? Yeah, I know much more about what's going on here than I do in other countries, but I'm a peer reviewer on a very, very large number of... Of, um, for a very large number of scientific and medical and nutrition journals. And so I see a lot of studies in the pipeline. And I more and more lately, I've seen studies about how food industry-sponsored organizations are attempting to influence the government of international countries like China um, or like India to try to get them not to regulate potentially unhealthful food products and to get them not to make recommendations or tax sodas or do anything that might make it easier for their populations not to eat quite so much junk food. So they're very active internationally. The International Life Sciences uh, Institute is an organization that has been particularly active internationally. It's got um, branches in many, many countries throughout the world. It pretends to be a independent scientific think tank, but it's totally funded by the food industry. And it has been implicated in many countries attempting to influence government not to regulate junk foods. Wow. Okay, so what can we do about food industry influence as consumers and community members and citizens? Well, you can pay attention to the issues. I mean, you should always, if you see a study that is advertised as a breakthrough, as a miracle, one food that will cure many, many different diseases, I'd be suspicious of that one. Um, and my favorite is everything you always knew about nutrition is wrong. Whenever you hear that one, a red flag should go up in the air. And you should try to be a little bit skeptical. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of this stuff is really fun, and I don't mean to 
kill the fun in it because um, nutrition research is a lot of fun. I've done it, you know, I've been involved in this for a long, long time, mostly because I think it's so entertaining. And I love <laughs> posting examples on my blog. My current favorite, my total current favorite, was one that somebody sent me at the beginning of the week. And it's a, a, a research article on how beer will prevent symptoms of Alzheimer's. Yes! <laughs> Guess who funded it? <laughs> the, invest the investigators were all Japanese. So what's your favorite Japanese beer? And you'll get Kieran, you got it. So, I mean, I just love this stuff. It's so much fun to talk about. <laughs> or the chewing gum one. Yeah, chewing gum is a good delivery system for vitamins. Bet you never thought of that. Wow. <laughs> um, the maker of Vitaball, a chewing gum that's vitamin supplemented. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. No, you really can't. Um, so we should all definitely be checking out your blog, Food Politics. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> to get the latest. So thank you so much, Marion, for joining us today. This episode of Real Food Reads was recorded live at Quesa at the Ferry Plaza Farmer's Market. So thank you to Quesa. And if you're ever in town, you should make sure to check out their farmer's markets or their events. A special thanks to James Rowland for being our on-site sound engineer. Annie Bernstein, our sound engineer. And yeah, I'm Tiffany Patton. You can find our episodes on Real Food Reads or on iTunes at Real Food Reads or on our website at realfoodmedia.org. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>
big question about GMOs. What concerns me about GMOs is the way the food biotechnology companies have taken over monoculture on crops in the United States, um, control what the food supply is, don't label their products, um, and behave as if they're in charge of the food supply and everybody has to do what they want. And so I think this becomes a question of autonomy in the food supply. I'm very sorry that um, the scientific issues around GMOs are so complicated. I think it's the industry's fault for not labeling. I was on the FDA Food Advisory Committee in 1994 when the FDA approved GMOs and those of us who were consumer representatives on that committee said, you gotta label this stuff. You have to do it. If you don't label it, nobody's gonna trust you. But that wasn't what they wanted. They got what they wanted and they deserve what they're getting now. What about in developing countries where there are serious problems in food security? Well, my understanding, and you can correct me on this, is that most of the research on genetically modified foods was aimed at first world problems. And I talked to people early on who were interested in third world problems. I mean, what you want in third world agriculture is being able to grow crops under very harsh climate conditions where water is limited, um, where you need a lot of nitrogen fixation, and where you, these are very, very difficult scientific problems. But the industry has never put much investment into those because third world countries can't pay for it whereas corn growers can pay for it. And I think that's been a problem from the beginning. So I have no theoretical opposition to it, um, but uh, the way in which the, the corporatization and the extraordinary capitalist way in which these companies have acted has been very distressing. And I think not in their own best interest. Well, I believe that's all that we have for time today for Q&A, but Marion will be signing books. Yeah, we're signing books indoors. Yeah. <laughs> Out of so, the smoke. So masks on, everybody. <laughs> At Book Passage. At Book Passage. Okay, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Thanks so much for coming.